I had this sense that they would say something like, how hard, how hard does this have to get before the adults change, before the adults begin to make a, a different approach to this? Um, and literally, do we have to kill ourselves uh, before we see adults making changes in schools? But what we never did was kind of look in the mirror and say to ourselves, what are we doing in schools that has kids so anxious and so distressed in the first place? They're still developing and we adults have to respect the integrity of the developing adolescent brain. Well, what we've seen for children um, that go way down below, even below the high school level, um, is that they get stressed out about these kinds of exams. They know that they're high stakes exams and they know that there's a high price on doing well. So the older they get, the more they get, uh, in a sense, um, weeded out. You know, if, if kids don't do well on these kinds of exams, then they get, they get categorized as kids who aren't quite as bright as the kids who did better. In every school, there's a lineup uh, of kids who are considered the smart kids and kids who are considered the, the less smart kids. And there's tracking. Um, and kids' identities get wrapped up into these, into these very tracking modes. I think that's beyond the pale. I, I think that, you know, when a student's whole year is resting on, on one grade or one particular test, um, that's not fair. Yeah, well, the cost, I think, is anxiety. And anxiety shows up in all kinds of ways. And the cost is, is depression. And the cost is uh, self-esteem. Um, the cost is, I'm not good enough. To, to move on. Um, the cost is comparing myself to the students who did move on. And how do I feel about myself? And these parents um, openly admit that they too want to raise healthy and happy and well-developed children. They want their kids to be um, healthy above all else. But they also acknowledge and they admit um, to nagging their kids to get their schoolwork done and to pressuring the students by their own examples of their own successes um, and expecting their students to get all their work done when there isn't enough time to get all of it done. Um, what if you didn't nag your children to get that work done? What if you didn't expect your kids to get all of their work done all of the time? What if you didn't expect your students to act and think like adults before they actually are adults. What would come up for you as parents? And every single parent I asked had basically the same response, which was to say, um, we would feel like failures as parents. We would feel like we hadn't done the best by our children to get our children into the best possible schools. Welcome to the Learner Space Conversations. My name is Gabriel Scheid, and I'm here to host a space where 
on each episode we will be discussing and talking about change in education so that amongst other things these conversations are not needed anymore we will be interviewing educators speakers authors thinkers entrepreneurs and and why not as we always say the dreamers of the day those who in the words of dh lawrence live their dreams with open eyes and make them happen Our guest today is Dr. David Gleason. David is a child psychologist and educator, and in that capacity he has worked with many high-performing schools all over the world. David is also, most importantly, the author of the book At What Costs Defending Adolescent Development in Fiercely Competitive Schools. What I would say is a must-read for any school leader, any educator worried about the future of learning. In, in the book, as he will surely share with us in the next few minutes, David provides a stark wake-up call regarding overscheduling and demanding of our students things that only adults can do. Thanks for being here with us, David. How's it going? It's going very well. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. David, we've interviewed quite a few people in our podcast. And for and in most cases, I haven't had to tell them to outline their theme because they're all about change in education and changing grading practices and assessment. And those are very well-known themes in terms of the change of education. But your message is so, so different, so original and so important that I'd love for you to tell us what, what have you learned over these years and what are you advocating for in your book? Okay. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not too much in terms of education, maybe not so much. The clock is ticking. I, I think what, what stood out for me, well, I, I would start by saying that the book that I finished um, is not the book that I started out to write. Um, having been a psychologist in high-performing schools, both in the U.S. but also internationally as a consultant, um, over many, many years, I realized that more and more students were starting to suffer from significant amounts of anxiety and depression. And, and I noticed it particularly as the suicide rate um, continued to increase um, around the world uh, among adolescents. So my, my, my first response was to try to capture a sense of the students' voices in terms of their experience of all this anxiety. Um, and I had, I had this fantasy, you might remember my describing this before, but I had this fantasy that if I could somehow, you know, when I started writing this book in the early, uh, around 2012 or so, 2012, 2013, I had this fantasy that after 20 years of having worked with adolescents for such a long time in schools, that if I somehow could have gathered them all back all the students with whom I had worked for the previous 20 years and they hadn't grown up yet. They were still the adolescents that I, that I had seen. I had this sense that they would say something like, how hard, how hard does this have to get before the adults change before the adults begin to make a, a different approach to this? Um, and literally do we have to kill ourselves uh, before we, see adults making changes in schools. Um, the conventional way of, of responding to these kids in the past has been to do what we've always done, which was to 
give them access to school counselors and give them access to um, mental health providers um, when they were experiencing this much anxiety and stress. But what we never did was kind of look in the mirror and say to ourselves, what are we doing in schools that has kids so anxious and so distressed in the first place? So that was, that became the centerpiece of my book, um, of having interviewed students and interviewed adults, mostly adults around the world, um, in terms of what their experiences were and what they wanted and, and what I described as the bind in their schools. Um, that these adults at the same time were open and honest about wanting you know, to have healthy, balanced um, education in their schools. And they wanted their kids to get enough sleep and they wanted their kids to be, to be well-balanced in all kinds of ways. But at the same time that that was true, these earnest and very honest adults also acknowledged in the interviews um, that they overscheduled their students, that they assigned way too much homework, uh, they, that they expected their students to act and think like adults before they actually were adults. And in lots of ways, they were setting students up for all of this stress and all of this anxiety. David, um, there, there are many, many very interesting dimensions of what you've just outlined that we're, we're going to try to explore in the next few minutes. But let me start by, by giving you a, a kind of metaphor that for me is always very illuminating. Um, People who want to promote marathons tell inspiring stories about people who are faltering midway through and, and then they find some hidden, hidden inner reserve and they make it all through to the 24 miles. But they never tell the stories of those who don't make it and, right. um, and um, who have to give up because they're just not up to it. And, it's, and, and needless to say, we all understand that a marathon, running a 24-mile marathon is not for every person. Not everybody can do it. And yet we never hear those stories. Can you reflect upon the untold stories of the students that have spoken to you, but who never, never formed part of the narrative of schools? Yeah. Um, what comes to mind is what was essentially the, the focus of my clinical work for many, many years, that, that these students in these high-performing schools, um, they all set out to try to make it. They all set out to try to, get it to the finish line, you know, of their, of their schools. And, to, and the finish line was lots of ways, not just graduation, but getting into high performing uh, elite colleges as well, that that was kind of the prize at the end of their course. Uh, but in the process of doing this, and I think it has a lot to do with the, the, the development, the developmental status of the adolescents themselves, that under, under the weight of all of this pressure to succeed um, and all of these hyper-scheduled, hyper-worked kids, um, what we saw was kids who were eating disordered, kids who were starving themselves, um, kids who were cutting themselves, self-injuring, and ultimately kids who were um, talking about suicide and ultimately kids who were actually committing suicide. Um, that those are the kids who didn't make it uh, or struggled um, 
so much along the way. And I wanted to bring those voices to the attention of the adults to say, we've got to do something different in our schools because we have more and more kids and they're just kids is, is kind of what, what I just kept coming back to is they're kids. They're not adults. They don't have the, the brain development to function as adults yet because they're just 14 and 15 and 16 years old. They're still developing. And we adults have to respect the integrity of the developing adolescent brain. Um, you make a very interesting everywhere. point in, in your book about the we demand of them, the kind of things they're incapable of because of developmental reasons, right? Exactly right. What can we do in terms of reshaping that success narrative that I think is so so pernicious to uh, healthy development? What, what can people in, in education do to, to change that story? Um, if, the easy, if the answer were easy, I would have written it in my book. <laughs> um, in the book, you might remember, I refer to a, another a mental health provider, a consultant named Ron, Ron Heifetz. Mm. And Ron Heifetz differentiates between what he refers to as adaptive versus technical changes, mm -hmm. right? And technical changes are changes that... Uh, The, the answers already exist. Um, examples are things like, you know, if you need your car fixed, you bring it to the auto mechanic and the mechanic knows exactly what to do and fixes it for you. And what's most interesting about that example is that it requires nothing of you, only that you just bring your car to the mechanic and wait and wait for the mechanic to finish fixing the car. Um, the other example that I used to use all the time was, um, the problem I would have of flying from one place to another, um, getting, I, I used to fly all over the world with this book and, um, you, you know, the problem I had was, if you will, getting from point A to point B. Um, and all I had to do was board a plane and sit in the plane and, you know, maybe take a glass of wine and maybe have, um, dinner and sleep and read a book and watch a movie but it watched, it expected nothing of me while a technician um, like an airplane pilot um, flew this plane uh, from point A to point B and got me to where, my, where I needed to be. Those are clear examples of technical challenges with, with absolutely well-known technical solutions. Adaptive changes are changes like what we've been facing. Now, um, The basic idea is that adaptive changes or adaptive challenges are challenges for which the answers don't exist yet and that require that adults come together and kind of roll up their sleeves and think together and work together to try to make changes that are in kids' best interest that they haven't even thought of before. Um, I was actually involved with doing that with a school here in the States um, just before the pandemic hit. Um, and had pre for the previous several months been working with this one school where the head of the school um, had knighted um, what we, we called this, you know, this health committee of um, members of the board of trustees, members of the faculty, members of the administration um, and parents. And it was a perfect match of like four, four trustees, four parents, four faculty members and four 
administrators. And we went through a series of exercises first, just to have this group of people blend with each other. So they got to know each other less by their titles and more by who they were and why they were there. Um, and this was becoming a core group that was then going to work with the rest of the school um, in, in their own uh, deliberate, gradual change efforts um, so that you could, you could hear from even the selection of the group that it had to be represented by everybody. Um, and the changes, they weren't changes that I could prescribe were changes that, that had to come from this working group as, as they began to work together. Um, and then the pandemic struck and then we were all shut down from doing this. Um, what's remarkable is once the pandemic hit, um, schools that previously said they couldn't change or they wouldn't change, they all changed. And they changed seemingly on a dime. Um, they had. But they were forced to change. They were forced to change. But here we are almost two years later, and they're still changing. And they're still making changes that are, they're tweaking their changes that they make before. And they were forced to change. So the argument of schools can't change was kind of out the window because now we know that schools can change when they have to. And they do change and they make important changes. Um, in, the, in the beginning of these change processes, you know, they changed their schedules, they changed their homework policies, they changed everything about their schools so that students actually began to benefit by some of these changes. But, but as you say in your blog, David, it took a mortal virus for this to happen. Exactly right. I, I want to ask you some very specific questions and you, you may not, if you don't want to answer, don't want to, you, you may not answer, but I'm, I'm going to ask you as if you were a, a, a physician about, you know, things you, you should do to keep our health in and things that happen in schools yeah. and that can be detrimental to children. So for example, external standardized exams, whether they are international exams or state mandated exams. The question is, how bad are they for, for children's health? And, and, and in terms of your experience and, and, and what you've seen with, with kids? Well, what we've seen for children um, that go way down below, even below the high school level, um, is that they get stressed out about these kinds of exams. They know that they're high stakes exams and they know that there's a high price on doing well. So the older they get, the more they get Uh, in a sense, um, weeded out, you know, if, if kids don't do well on these kinds of exams, then they get, they get categorized as kids who aren't quite as bright as the kids who did better. So this puts, this adds to the pressure uh, that kids have to experience all the way through school. We see this in early grades as well. Um, schools have different names for these tests, but, um, But all of these schools have these tests that, that basically are, I think, are weeding kids in and out of, of uh, these categories. Homework and uh, the, the, this kind of idea that you have to do at least two or three hours of homework every day 
and, and then as a, as a kind of overarching ethos for the school. Yeah. Um, I would never say homework is not um, valuable. I think homework is valuable if it enhances the learning that's happening in the classroom. Um, but too often times homework is given as busy work or because it's, it's expected to be given. Um, so students feel burdened by all these hours of homework. And what we also know is that students vary in their rates of getting homework done. Some students work very quickly and are able to move through these homework assignments with relative ease, or at least not with such difficulty. Some students spend so much time reading every word uh, and trying to get everything right for their homework. They're spending four and five hours a night on homework assignments as if seven hours of school wasn't already enough um, during that day. So there's no easy answer there, um, but I think language teachers and math teachers um, you know, would, would be the first ones to say, you can't, you can't teach those subjects without having there be some kind of practice um, also assigned for the night. And I, I, don't, I don't have any problem with that. Um, it's a question of degree. Grading practices, including averages and failing students. Mm. Not sure what to say about that. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think um, in every school, there's a lineup uh, of kids who are considered the smart kids and kids who are considered the, the less smart kids. And there's tracking. Um, and kids' identities get wrapped up into these, into these very tracking modes. Um, if I'm a student in high school and, I, and the best I can do is get a B um, on, a, on a test or a paper, then over time I begin to consider myself a B student, uh, a, a B person, um, as opposed to if I'm someone who always gets A's, um, who always gets, you know, high marks on my papers and on my tests, then I consider myself an A student. I'm a, I'm a top quality A student. And the same is true for kids who are struggling at the lower end. If kids are getting C's or lower, then their esteem uh, kind of follows their grading. Uh, if they're used to just getting low grades, they don't think of themselves as very smart. And is very capable, and it affects how they grow and how they begin to see themselves um, throughout the educational process. A term that you refer to very, very directly in, in your book and in your talks, overscheduling. Yes. How, um, how, how bad is that? <laughs> Because there's a, there's a kind, again, of, of collective idea that uh, we need to have students be very busy all the time, partake in as many activities as possible, go to clubs, extracurricular sports, etc. Yeah. Um, I think that the overscheduling happens when they, you know, I know of schools who um, they expect all students to be involved with sports um, every single season of every single year in, in the high school level. Um, but if a student wants to instead 
um, focus on being in the arts, whether it's in the performing arts or the visual arts. Um, and there's just as much practice involved with that or rehearsals for plays that are gonna be put on. Um, it's not as if the student gets to choose between being involved with a sport or being involved with, um, with a theater production. Um, they have to do both. If they wanna do the theater, they have to do both. Um, that's an example of being, I think, overscheduled. Um, I think students should be able to choose um, whether they are involved with athletics, you know, for two seasons and maybe one season they're involved with theater. Um, I think that it's about just paying attention to what the students are actually capable of doing. There are only 24 hours in the day. Um, and in so many schools over schedule their students in so many ways that the students hardly have time to, to do their own homework, let alone, let alone sleep. Um, so many of the students that we were talking about are, are not just overscheduled, but are sleep deprived because of it. David and, and the, the one that maybe is the, the, the most flagrant example of how schools have gotten to a point where we've lost track of, of, of well-being in, in many places in the world and many of our listeners operate in such environments and such systems in in the high school level at the high school level students have to do exams where it may they're passing or failing the whole year and having to repeat a year may hinge upon a single exam of a single subject yeah what about failing a year when when is that justified are, are have we have we just become totally crazy when we do these things or or what Well, I think that we are, um, um, I think that's beyond the pale. I, I think that, you know, when a student's whole year is resting on, on one grade or one particular test, um, that's not fair. It's just not fair because the student has put in all kinds of work and the learning process is itself a gradual one. And it might be that they don't, they don't learn what they They don't crystallize kind of their learning for this exam until later on. Um, no, and and, but, and, and and taking the title of your book, what is the cost of the decision of saying you can't move forward in, 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 in your schooling? Yeah, well, the cost, I think, is anxiety. And anxiety shows up in all kinds of ways. And the cost is, is depression. And the cost is uh, self-esteem. Um, the cost is I'm not good enough. To, to move on. Um, the cost is comparing myself to the students who did move on. And how do I feel about myself? Um, there's such a close, there's such a close marriage between self-esteem and, and school performance um, that self-esteem tends to be better among students who are, who are performing better in school. The school is the only game in town for kids until they're adults. It's, it's, where they are, it's where they are expected to perform. Um, and if the kids, for various reasons, whether they have particular learning challenges or because they're overscheduled or because 
of any number of reasons, uh, they can't perform at maximal levels. Um, who is to blame? The students feel blamed. But I think it's about having the adults. Um, I mean, we didn't, well, the parents are involved with this too. Um, you know, I didn't just interview um, adults in schools. I, I interviewed uh, parents for this book as well. And these parents um, openly admit that they too want to raise healthy and happy and well-developed children. They want their kids to be um, healthy above all else, but they also acknowledge and they admit um, to nagging their kids to get their schoolwork done and to pressuring the students by their own examples of their own successes um, and expecting their students to get all their work done when there isn't enough time to get all of it done. And when I ask these parents, um, what if you didn't nag your children to get that work done? What if you didn't expect your kids to get all of their work done all of the time? What if you didn't expect your students to act and think like adults before they actually are adults? What would come up for you as parents? And every single parent I asked had basically the same response, which was to say, um, we would feel like failures as parents. We would feel like we hadn't done the best by our children to get our children into the best possible schools. Um, so the children, the adults themselves find themselves in a bind of both wanting what's best for their kids, but also um, finding themselves stuck in a, in a, in a bind where they're, they're actually playing part of the role of why it is and how it is that kids are feeling so anxious and stressed in the first place, just like the teachers in, in their schools. David, um, all that you say makes a lot of sense. And as you, as, as you mentioned, um, parents at the end of the day will, will want their best, the best for their children and still things don't change. What, what, what are the factors that hinder this change? Like what, what are the, the main culprits uh, above school? Is it societal expectations? Is it that we're a transition generation that still believes in the, in the kind of rat race model, play hard and, and work hard for the material rewards? And then we found that all of that was empty. Are we, are we moving towards a sort of collective higher level of consciousness, but this still doesn't reflect in, in education? What, what, what do you think of that? Well, Um, I think what you say is true. All of those things are sort of play a role. But I think that the bind that the teachers are in and the bind that the parents are in is one that's based in fear. Um, fear that their children won't be successful. Fear that their children won't do well. You know, I often say as parents, our job is to put ourselves out of business um, so that our kids grow up to have lives of their own, where they're in charge of their own autonomy, their own decisions, their own uh, pathways. Um, and I think what most parents in this situation are experiencing, whether they acknowledge it or not, is a fear that if I don't do these kinds of things to nag our kids, if we don't expect our kids to, to be superstars in all these different ways, then they won't be successful and they won't be successful, meaning they won't get the jobs that they, we want them to get. They won't make enough money to be successful. Um, 
that we will basically, we won't be putting ourselves out of business effectively so that our kids will be able to, to thrive on their own. We're One afraid, of the people, we're, yeah, sorry. We're, afraid, we're afraid that our kids won't thrive. Um, and, and the teachers are involved with that too. One of our guests in, in a similar conversation about change and why change didn't happen, he said a lot of it has to do with uh, kind of childhood trauma. Like we were exposed to the kind of trauma where if you didn't have a bad time in school, if you didn't suffer in school, it, it meant that something was going wrong and that maybe unwittingly as parents or as teachers were trying to unconsciously re reproduce that scenario. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a theory I've, I've heard before. Um, So I can't really comment on it, but <laughs> but I I don't. The thing is, it's um, it's for people outside our industry of education. It's so it's like if you went to another industry and you said, you know, there's a proven way to do things better, industrial methods, scientific research, but factories are still producing like like they were a hundred years ago. It makes no sense to anybody outside of the education industry. Like all that you've said is and there's. There's no counter argument to all that you've expressed, David. And yet schools are still pursuing this empty ideal of having kids being uber successful in all disciplines. And we know that life doesn't work that way. And as you said, you know, that's why I love your book. What is the cost of that? What is what is the hidden uh, agenda? What, what what is the hidden cost of all, all that we're doing? And, and yet it's an impossible to understand. I think the hidden cost is is becoming less hidden. We're much more aware these days of the number of the amount of anxiety and stress and pressure that students are experiencing. Um, and they're telling us both directly and indirectly. They tell us because they tell us with, with actual words how pressured and stressed they feel. But they also tell us with their behavior and their behavior is, is self-destructive. Um, and their behavior is acting out. Um, negative feelings that they experience all the time that they don't know how else to how else to manage i think it's also gotten in some ways worse since the pandemic because as you might recall during the first year of the pandemic um, many students took gap years instead of go on to this to to the college of their choice and what that meant was that in the subsequent year Uh, there were fewer places available for the next class to apply to because so many kids had taken gap years um, instead of going into a school year. They didn't know what to expect. Um, so that's just one example of how the competition in some of these schools have gotten has gotten even even more steep, even more severe. What's the reaction from, from schools from your book? You've kind of uncovered an, an inconvenient truth. Uh, how did they react in general, uh, some of these high-performing schools, for example? Um, I, I would say um, they reacted in much better ways than I thought they would. Um, I was afraid when I published the book That, that this would not meet with any you know, popular appeal, that I was, I was coming out with an unpopular message. And You're going to be blacklisted be, in I these I was going to be blacklisted in some ways. Um, but quite frankly, most of the schools where I went um, took it very seriously and, and had their own experiences of 
oh my gosh, what are we doing? We, we are in charge here. We can do things differently. And then they would ask me, what do we do? And I'd say, well, I wish I could tell you what to do, but that's, that's where adaptive change comes into play. Um, but I would say most of the schools and conferences where I presented about this book took it incredibly seriously um, and wanted to do, wanted to start looking at their own schools and looking at how they could work with parents and how they could work with each other and how they could work with students in ways that were more balanced and safer and more healthy. Um, I, was, I was actually quite pleased with how schools responded to this book. At the, um, at the deep end of your, your message lies uh, a very profound truth in terms of how to redefine success and what kind right. of success models are we educating for. Um, what can you say to us about the redefinition of, su of societal success from the old model of somebody who makes a lot of money, has a, a high status position in a multinational corporation, etc.? And, and what can we do to that in, in, from our schools? Well, I don't think one can will ever get rid of that one particular um, dimension of a, of a definition of success because um, the world is the world in which our, the, the kids we're talking about in these high performing schools are coming from families where there's already such competition Um, to get into certain schools and to get into certain programs and to um, and to make it in such a, a competitive environment. Okay, but let, so, let me change the question. Let me change the question because that's that's key to what you've said. How would you define a high-performing school in in real terms? If if because you've you've used this term and we all understand that what you're saying, high-performing, it means they get high marks in international exams by all all, all kinds of conventional benchmarks they're doing well they're sending their students to top colleges etc let's forget all that how would you david redefine high performing in a different model i guess i would probably i don't know um i wish i had a, a clear you know concise response to that but i think my i know that my answer would be much more health-based um it would be it would be focused on uh making sure that the students in our schools are not overworked and overwhelmed all the time, but that they are allowed to develop um, in a way that is consistent with how their bodies are, are actually made, um, that they're not forced to be someone they're not expected to be, that they're not forced to, um, yeah, to do that, that, that they're not forced to be someone they're not. Um, and that they're allowed to be who they are um, in, a, in a more gradual uh, process. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be involved with competition. Competition, you know, can be a good thing, um, but not constantly comp competing. These kids know that they're competing with each other every single day in these schools. And they try to hide that. But the truth is they're competing with each other for the same very few spots in highly competitive colleges. Um, and that's an absolute truth. And I think a great example is that the most admired companies in the world, those who 
haven't got, they don't have to go out to prove they're successful like Uber, Apple, uh, Uber, Google, Apple, etc. Um, they pride themselves in their offering work conditions that cater exactly to what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, but it's competitive to get jobs in those places. Sure, but at least they they embody a kind of workplace ideal that is is very different to what we do in schools. We would never think of saying to kids in schools, you know, take take as much time as you please to think of new ideas. That would be sure. anathematic to the whole concept of schools. And yet, the twenty percent thing of Google uh, has become a gold standard for industry. That's right. Yeah, that's right. David, how do you see two final two questions? First one is, how do you see the pandemic impacting the future of learning in terms of all that we've discussed? Do you think that some of these lessons will be hardwired into the new model of schooling or are we gravitationally being pulled back to the old ways? I think both are true. I think that, that schools have begun to recognize with their different schedules um, and with different homework assignments, um, you know, schedules of homework that kids are actually in some situations, kids are actually feeling, feeling better. They're getting more sleep. Their schedules are more balanced. Um, they're, they're not doing quite as much work as they were before. And I think that some of these changes will stay. Um, and they, and I think that schools are, are genuinely surprised by how these changes are actually working out for them instead of against them. But I also think that there are lots and lots of schools that are waiting for the pandemic to be over so they can simply rush back to the way things were. Um, but I think there's a, there's a normal that's itself evolving um, and it's still evolving. We're still in the, in the middle of this process. And, you know, from what we know, the pandemic um, isn't going to be over anytime immediately soon. So this is still an evolving process in schools. Final one. Suppose uh, one day the genie comes out of the bottle and says, David, because of your long and distinguished work and how you've promoted <laughs> uh, well-being in students, I will grant you one wish for education. What, what would that wish be? Wow. Um, that the goal of education um, is not material success, but the goal of education is to educate every child according to his or her um, own capacities um, and to have them taste success uh, at, a, at a level that's, that, that is available to them at every age that they are. Um, that the goal of education is to help children become more whole, uh, more balanced, more healthy, goal-directed human beings and not make them feel like they're, they're failures if they don't get into the top schools. Wonderful. Thank you, David. And, and thanks for all you do on behalf of children all over the world. Again, I, I can't thank you enough for, for spreading the word about all, the, all that we should not be doing anymore and, and the hidden cost of uh, of many of our decisions in school. So thanks a lot, David. And, and we encourage all of our listeners to browse his, his book. We're going to publish links to his blog and, and to the book on our, on our page. So please uh, spread the word. Thank you, David. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Nice to see you. 
Thanks for joining us. You can find this and all past and future episodes at conversations.thelearnerspace.org. That again is conversations.thelearnerspace.org where you will also find a summary of the contents of each of the episodes as well as links to resources, books and other websites related to each of our guests. David provided us today with uh, a harsh wake-up call regarding some of the hidden costs of education and some of the stories we never hear and some of the stories we, we never tell as, as schools, as educators. The challenge we face is as clear as it is formidable as we seek to develop a future of learning that embraces diversity, different styles of learning that, that essentially takes care of children's well-being, as we all know we should. It is imperative, and it is an ethical imperative, that we not forget those voices that usually are drowned either by the sheer weight of our conventional definition of success and maybe, who knows, by our incipient and well-intentioned and yet perhaps also stressful pursuit of a new model for education. Thanks and until the next one.